You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. As always, I, I bring a stack of books and I forget to pass them out. I have a few more here that I wanted to highlight. Uh, I had brought in already The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser, which is a admittedly pretty academic deep dive into the Hebrew behind all this. Doug Van Dorn, who wrote the Giants book that I had passed around a few weeks ago, he wrote this companion. And honestly, it, it's, it's formatted being a, a good Reformed Baptist that he is as a catechism. It's basically, uh, if you were to take the Westminster format and apply it to these questions... It's, it's, it's great. It's very good, much easier to read than its uh, mother volume. Uh, we have not covered much in here, though I've certainly gleaned from it, but this is great. This is Clinton Arnold. It's called Three Crucial Questions About Spiritual Warfare. Uh, it looks dated, but it is, in fact, excellent. It's extremely good information, uh, very good, uh, lot, just lots to go around. There's really a, a lot of great benefit here. I recommend that. It's interesting, too, because he's, he's writing from more of a broadly evangelical background, uh, but is wrestling with deep exegesis of Scripture and really trying to come to a lot of the conclusions that we've been wrestling through ourselves. Uh, and then we have Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. You have to always include at least one Puritan a week because they have the best book titles. This is the classic by Thomas Brooks. If there's any of these books you've probably heard of before, I would venture to say it was this one. Uh, but very good, extremely devotional. Uh, it is, you know, kind of the, the Puritan Old English, but you can wrestle, uh, wrestle through it. And then I had said I hadn't brought any tomes before, but I do have this. <laughs> which is the Dictionary of Demons and Deities in the Bible. So I, I wanted to pull out all the stops today. Sadly, this, this is an incredible reference book, but it's been out of print since, I think, 1999. So if you want to make me a happy boy, you can help me find an actual print hardcover. In, instead, I have my binders for you. So I, if you don't really... I'm not going to pass these around because they're huge. If you want to look at them, feel free. But this is deeply... Uh, this is an intensive work. It's, it's looking at all ancient Near East cosmology and mythology and religion and word study and cross you know, different languages. It's, it's a heavy hitter, but as you can see, it's about 1,020 pages, I think, split between these volumes. So if you want to take a peek, I'll, I'll keep them up here. Uh, with that said, we'll come to our, our primary focus today, which is spiritual warfare. We've been building up to it for six weeks now, and I've tried to model this study so that as we're, we're working through preamble and foundational stuff, by the time we're getting, like last week, talking about paganism and occultism, this is the stuff that actually we're going to bump into day to day, and increasingly the vogue worldview of anywhere outside the church. We're not a secular society. We're not secular people. We are built to worship, and we will readily find avenues to interact with knowledge and insight and enlightenment and all those concepts if we don't have Christ. It's as simple as that. That is the default position of our hearts. So getting into <clears throat> spiritual warfare proper, uh, we had mentioned this section from Ephesians back towards the beginning of the series, I believe, but it's pertinent to return here. It's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul writing, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul then identifies here there are three fronts of spiritual warfare. The world, the devil, and the flesh. We have the influence of our context, the direct assault of our adversary, and the seduction of our fallen nature. Uh, I think we had had begun last month talking about how, uh, in many ways, we, we fail. We use the word warfare or spiritual battle. We don't really think about what that actually means in terms of the logistics of it. As in, quite simply, if we defend very well against the temptations of the flesh and consider not at all that we live in a sin-scorched world and have an ancient, intelligent foe who wants to destroy us, you leave your flank open and are immediately overrun. We take it for granted. Again, we are excellent Calvinists by profession, which means we have a very good appreciation for our total depravity. But that is not the entire story, as clearly we have seen so far. And I want to walk through just a few passages here from Old New Testament that kind of highlight the different areas here, right? So James 1, 5, and 6, talking about you know, being, being tossed to and fro if you don't understand your context. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. If you don't understand who we are and who God is and why those two relate to each other, we are at the disposal of our enemies. First Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That is quite a heavy-hitting verse from Paul's writing. And in fact, I, I have misplaced this book in the last few weeks, so I'm sorry I've not brought it in, but Nathaniel Holmes, another Puritan, wrote an excellent volume simply called Demonology and Theology. Uh, I, I'll, I'm planning on eventually putting maybe like next week on a book list of just to say, here's the stuff I've read, because many of you have asked me. Uh, this is one that I would heartily recommend. It's really, really good. Um, and he basically, his whole book is just a, a expansion of this specific passage. What do these things mean? What do they look like in the world? What do we do with them? So should I have that with me? I'll pass it around. I have a feeling my three-year-old has dispatched that and I will never see it again. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, Job 2.7, we've already gone through this. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, directly reaching out, touching him, and ruining his experience as a blameless man. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And we've already talked about he is bound in terms of deceiving the nations. He is ultimately losing the battle, the war, writ large in Christ's final victory. But we also see that he is still given the agency, kind of like a dog on a long leash, able to still have uh, a lot of exerted influence and individual temptation, to be sure. Jeremiah 17, 9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Clearly, we're more familiar with that one again from our Reformed heritage. uh, It points directly to the nature of our hearts. 
Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But for the grace of God, we are on the outside and at the whims of many predators that would desire to destroy us. So <clears throat> with that, I wanted to talk and, and kind of put us, uh, put us in a, a paradigm where we can better understand how these are uh, applied to us specifically. So there are three ways that I'm going to look at how we function as people and then how we must then interact with the world around us, both spiritually and physically. As a avowed classicist, I'm going to bring Plato into the conversation. He wrote about the tripartite soul. This was his trying to understand, as a pagan, close but no cigar to the gospel age, how do we tick? What, what, how do we function? And he says we have the logos, or our consistent intellect, our head, our, our rationality, our ethos, or our character, our kind of devotion, what, what makes us stand up for what we believe. And then finally, the pathos, the passionate desire. So he would simply say, your head, your heart, and your belly, right? And his, his many theses over the years were trying to say, you have to order these correctly. If one dominates the others, and it's the wrong one, one, you're going to be in for a world of hurt. If, you're, if you, you know, rule every part of your day only with your appetite, then surely you'll be a disordered person. So that's his take. He's just basically saying we have a mind, we have feeling, and we also have desire, and, and, and those are all affected differently, and they interact with one another. Uh, the $5 word of the day today is triperspectival. This comes out of John Frame, who uh, was at, I think he was at Westminster West for years, and then he was down at RTS in Orlando. I actually took a class or two with him back when I was actually regularly attending seminary, which those are halcyon days, long gone. Um, But he is a great, just one of the most profound thinkers of our day and our heritage. And he says this. So this is a big word that actually makes a lot of sense if you just break it down. So he talks about three perspectives. There's the normative perspective, or what is true and authoritative, like the thing that is always valid no matter what we're doing. It's, it's the backdrop, the white noise that makes everything hum. To us and to frame, he would say, this is the Bible. The Bible is that unwavering standard by which we must measure all things. We have a situational perspective, or where we find ourselves in time. So it's, it's not just what we know and what we believe is to be true, it's what we have to interact with every day. So this is getting outside of Plato a little bit, just talking about the person, and saying you are in a context at all times, and you have to understand what that context is and how that interacts with you. Uh, then he has the existential perspective, or how we interact with life on our terms, talking about the self. So he's trying to say, in any, anything you're interacting with, you have to figure out what is true and what is valid, how the context changes or maybe nuances that, and then what are your motivations, your assumptions, your passions? How do those things all go? So he kind of lays like a little triangle down on anything and says, you have to figure out what these points are, but they help understand the world, where you are. And he's drawing this out of scripture and saying, you know, commonly, God is appealing both to what we know and what we believe, what we are duty-bound to obey, and and what we see, you know, the application of what we do in time, and then also, you know, the deep thoughts of our hearts and and the, the inward life that we have. You cannot interact with any of these things in a vacuum. They all go together. 
Uh, last one here that I think will be the most useful for us in the end. Oh, yes, Mary Alice, please. Yes, just as we read through those, this has a little hint of situational ethics. Sure. You know, that's kind of... Ugh. Sometimes there are situational ethics. Ultimately, those have to be grounded, though, by what we know is true and what we personally believe. So what he's trying to say with situational perspective is not to say everything's relative and it just depends on where you find yourself. He's saying we have to acknowledge that our context, where we do find ourselves, whether that's our workplace or our church or whatnot, any part of the world, that does color our immediate experience of any one time. And we have to keep that in mind. But that doesn't change the ethical and true conduct in that instant. I mean, you're Correct. Right, and that's why he's saying it's not just the situational perspective. It's tri-perspectival. You have to remember who you are, who God is, and where you are. All three of those things go together. So to clarify that, it's not John Frame is not arguing for situational ethics where uh, maybe the rules go out the window. No, the whole point is that you're applying the rules to a unique situation. So this last one here, the head, the heart, and the hands, this, I think, again, will be the most useful paradigm for us as we filter more in here. Uh, Chase Davis, I think he's a pastor out in Boulder, Colorado, had, had put this together as kind of a discipleship tool of saying, when we're learning more about being uh, Christians and living together in community, we have to realize we are different parts and all those parts have to function in tandem in order for us to actually succeed where we are and to grow and to learn and to love one another. So... He says the head, quite frankly, straightforward, where we think and consider, the heart, where we feel and believe, and the hands, where we act and engage. And the reason we're talking about this in the terms of spiritual warfare is because we have to take a step back and realize that these are three different arenas wherein we are targeted and affected by temptation and evil. We are not just heads. That's a great weakness in our tradition. We tend to, what's a theological answer? Let's just get, get the right answer know what is true, and then move on. And yet we could see in, in cases like that, you know, are, are you walking around with you know, catastrophic thinking all the time, every, making everything worse than it actually is? Or one thing that I've heard many times, and I think I've experienced myself, not maybe being in, in a self-deprecating mood saying, you know, I'm a loser, I, I'm not good enough. No, hearing somebody say, you are a loser. You're not good enough. But hearing that right up here, is that not an intrusive thought that it probably is coming from somewhere else than just my subconscious? Or the heart, right? We, we talk all about uh, the, the lust, the flesh, the desires that we have, the wrongly ordered affections. And sometimes we say, again, uh, if we just kind of pray a little harder, it'll be good. If we just get alone, if we have some alone time, if we just kind of find God, then we're going to be okay. When all the same time, that is where we are distracted into isolation or we are deluding ourselves or puffing up our own works by trying to say, you know, we, we, are, we are trying so hard. And so that's what justifies it when it could be someone deluding our hearts, in fact. And the hands. Maybe if you're feeling bad or you're feeling depressed, just throw yourself into something. Get a new hobby or go out, go, go work at a soup kitchen, go on a mission trip. If you do that stuff, you know, really get engaged, then it'll make sure that you're buttressing yourself against oppression. When it is all three of these things that have to be aware, both from a defensive posture and lived into actively. We need to be aware and conscious and active to defend 
our head, our heart, and our hands. We'll touch on this a little bit. Um, all three of these concepts speak to how we live and, and again, how we fight. Mary Alice. I, uh, you know, I, I'm living there right now. The first bullet point. Yep. Um, I know that if you alter brain chemistry, you can alter those three things. Mm -hmm. Because although our brain is not our mind, it is the radio through which the signal comes, mm -hmm. as long as we're in these bodies. Um, when that brain chemistry is messed up, messed up, you can't always think your way out of these things. You can't always access God the way you used to when you were thinking straight. Um, I've been told by many professionals, and several grains of salt from in there, keep yourself busy. Keep that mind occupied so that you don't go to those places with your catastrophic thinking. <laughs> I thank God for the things I've learned. Is that what you're saying here? Partly. So Mary Alice's question is, well, starting, you know, what we'll hear, if you just change your brain chemistry, then some of these things will change, and certainly they will. What I would say to, to, to build on that, Mary Alice, to your later point, is that we tend to have a very reductionistic idea of who the person is, what we are. So, oh, you're depressed? Well, we need a new medication. Keep working on it. It's not working? Up the dosage. That one doesn't work? You're maxed out? Try a new medicine. We just have a, a constant therapeutic idea of all we are is just chemistry. That tends to be a, a very simplistic, modern idea, right? If, if, if the series is doing anything, it's trying to dislodge that default modernism that we have. Our material ideas are just simply not accurate. So it could be that we have a heart problem, Mary Alice, but someone's trying to medicate your head the whole time. You know, are you depressed because you're being whispered to with false ideas and, and the doctrines of demons, as Paul said in Timothy, and yet you're trying to just, you know, maybe I just work out an extra hour every day, I'll be okay. Just distract myself, as you said. Get your mind off of that thing, where we have different areas where we're being afflicted and we're, we're reacting in the wrong ones to try and fix it, mainly because we have a, a very narrow understanding of ourselves and we don't think that we are more fully orbed than we actually are, not just being physical in different ways, being spiritual in different ways. you have a follow-up? Yes. According to the professionals, my problem stems from the anesthetic I was given at the time of my surgery. Mm -hmm. Now, Jim, when your brain is affected, you can't think your way out of these things. Right. That's what's affected. So appealing to a realization that everything's involved doesn't compute. You know, you're not able to think your way through this or to feel your way through it, or to actuate through it. Mm -hmm. Because the central processing unit, for one of the better terminology, is messed up. Yeah, so thank God you're married to a godly man and are surrounded by godly friends, because you're not alone. Yes. That's another part of this, right? We are not islands who are just drifting out there trying to duke it out against either our simple temptations or you know cosmic forces and powers, as Paul says later. We're not alone. And I need all of you to keep me accountable and help me out and encourage me, just as I hope to be available to do that for you. Yeah. Like in biblical counseling, it, 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 what was always helpful to me is like thinking of a glass of, and not knowing 
how much of that class is for spiritual mm-hmm. or physical mm-hmm. or, you know, something going on physical with her brain from a medication. Um, so we can't ever know, right, what what percentage is this and what is that. But as Christians, we can, we know we can approach those things that are spiritual and then see what the Lord does with the physical, right? And so you're, you're just seeking, and like what happens now, what you're talking about in modernism, is I think a lot of Christians don't address spiritual. And so it becomes just a medical or a physical. And so because you can't know, I think it's very detrimental for Christians going around pointing the finger that everything is spiritual. Yep. But I think Christians, on the other hand, it's detrimental to make everything physical. And so we can't, you know, just making that like picture of not actually knowing, but having as a Christian, having the responsibility of the spiritual part and then seeing what the Lord does. Yeah, thank you. Rihanna makes a great point that we we tend to, as modern Christians, kind of push the spiritual to the side, even though we certainly appeal to it, right? We're Christians, but we tend to still approach things from a just a purely physical angle, or there are traditions within the modern church that jump on the horse and fall off the other side, right? Where we have, uh, there's a demon of everything, and everything is always spiritual, and we're, we're basically just spirits living in a husk, and who cares about our bodies? Who cares about our lived experience? It's just about who we are spiritually. Um, and, and another good point she makes is that we don't know always. We can't accurately diagnose where we are and what's going on. The difference is that we have to know we are in a volatile situation every day because we live in a fallen world arrayed not just with our inward temptations, but with very real external threats that want to thwart us and throw us to the side. Colin? Yeah, we also can't think our way to salvation. God and Spirit works mm-hmm. not exclusively through the mind. Right. Yeah. Colin's point, you know, ultimately it's the spirit who convinces and converts the heart of the sinner. It's not our thinking our way in. We do have to assent to faith and understand it. But that is, again, only one part. We think, uh, I don't have the paradigm in my head, but there's another tripartite manner in understanding what faith is. It's, it's assenting and knowing, it's, it's believing it, and it's also trusting in it, loving it. I forget the, the words that go there that are fancier than what I just said, but it's the idea, like, there's, there's more to faith than just nodding and saying, okay, Jesus, thank you, right? There's way more to it. Um, yeah, Laura. We also have the Holy Spirit, and we know when something is wrong, mm-hmm. and we are convicted whether or not we know exactly what the solution is. We know that what we're thinking we're doing is not correct. Yeah. And it disturbs us. Very much so, yeah. Laura's point is we have the Holy Spirit ministering to us every day, and, and thankfully, not only through the, the teaching of illumination in Scripture and in the providence of our, our lived world, but also, you know, the prompting of our conscience. Thank God for our conscience. That is something why, as Paul said in that verse in Timothy, you know, their, their consciences were seared, and that's why they were pathological liars giving the doctrines of demons. If you continue to go against your conscience, you are maiming yourself. But even that is not merely just an intellectual bucket that says, this is right, this is wrong, don't do wrong things, only do right things. It's a felt reality as well, and it's also something that we interact with as we make choices and do things. So all that is excellent. I want to move on here to um, 
kind of what this looks like for the average guy, right? What, what's going on for men and women who are just in the context where this happens. So Thomas Brooks, who uh, wrote that Precious Remedies Against the Devices of Satan, he says, Satan hides the hook of sin. He baits the hook with that which is alluring to the fish. He conceals the ugliness and flaunts the beauty. It is for no reason that Satan, the fallen cherub, disguises himself as an angel of light, as Lucifer, right? We are tailor-made in our temptations, and those things are meant to look good until we realize they are not, but it's a little too late. Uh, William Gurnall, another Puritan, this is just the Puritan power hour here. Under the skirt of Christian liberty, Satan conveys in libertinism. By crying up the spirit, he decries and vilifies the scripture. By magnifying faith, he labors to undermine repentance and blow up good works. If Satan get into thy spirit and defile it, oh, how hard wilt thou find it to stay there. Thou hast already sipped of his broth, and now are more likely to sit down and make thy full meal of that which by tasting hath vitiated thy palate already. Use that phrase in a sentence this week with your friends. See what they think. But Gurnall's point being... You know, it's not just we're tempted to do bad, naughty things by the devil. In fact, it's to distort our Christian experience. He says by, by emphasizing the spiritual, kind of like what Rihanna was saying, emphasizing the spirit, you tend to say, you know, I had a word from the Lord, and I don't need to look at the Bible anymore. You know, it's purely just my, that's kind of, uh, you know, there, there are many modern heretical strains there where it's saying we don't need the authority of Scripture because it's just me and Jesus camping out out here. Or by magnifying our faith, he's saying, look at how good of a Christian you are. Think about that when we, when we, we are tempted to blow up our own appreciation for ourselves. Man, I was so righteous today. That was fantastic. I just really knocked it out of the park. And you can immediately in that vein think, oh, she wasn't. That guy wasn't. You know, I made a better choice there. Then boom, you're the Pharisee and the tax collector in 60 seconds flat. Is that not spiritual warfare, a distortion, delusion, and derision of our true faith? So uh, Gernel's point that I think is worth just distilling here is that spiritual declension, that slow march out of godliness, is the greatest consistent medium of spiritual warfare. It's not being executed in one fell swoop. It's death by a thousand tiny cuts, right? No one wakes up and decides, I think I'll have an affair today. No. It's a long, long path of little decisions, small rationalizations, small choices that go against our conscience that end us in very hot water. Erica? So how much of this is would warfare, warfare be part of... Um, our fallen nature versus active outside force. Is there like How do we we differentiate That's a good question. Eric is just simply saying, how do we identify where this warfare comes from? Is it outside? Is it inside? Is it our flesh? Is it the world? Is it the devil? And the answer, kind of to what Rihanna said earlier, is we can fill the glass up with uh, various proportions of these things. We don't really know. And I'm not saying that like we're hopeless and we can never figure it out. I'm saying that the answer is yes. As in, we have to not simply say, if I just really build up my prayer life and know my scripture, then I will never be tempted by sin again. That's a fool's errand. We should absolutely pursue those things because they are rightly ordered affections. However, there are many different fields where we have to be vigilant. And, and you know, we're probably not going to end on time today. But if we do, I'll attempt to wrap that up nicely for you with a bow. <laughs> 
Um, Paul Tripp, one of the great modern counselors today, has this to say, and he had a lot more that I wanted to include, but I didn't want to make this just the Paul Tripp slide either. A lot of people think, and he's speaking of Ephesians, which is where we you know, famously get the armor of God passage about spiritual warfare. Paul is really driving the point home. We'll talk about that some more, but he makes this observation that I think is very keen. A lot of people think that Ephesians 6 changes the subject from the previous ideas of marriage, family, parenting, and communication in preceding chapters. All of a sudden, we're talking about spiritual warfare. Why the sudden topical shift? What Paul is doing, in fact, summarizing that everything which comes before is exemplary of the arenas in which spiritual warfare takes place. You know, part of the literacy of this series to to make all of our boats rise together is that, as we've already said, everything is spiritual and physical. We're not living in some bifurcated reality. Uh, We we see that the the heavenly host, good and ill, are all around us at all times. That's all throughout scripture. And not just that, but the choices we make are not merely informed by our chemistry or our predilections. They are, in fact, our souls and bodies acting together. In the same way, Spiritual warfare is not, you know, standing guard against some sort of horned pitchfork figure who's going to show up and tempt you. It is all day, every day. Paul Tripp goes on to say, it's the lived experience. It's war, period. So he's trying to point out, in fact, that everything we do, you know, when you, when you do sit down, you're called in by your boss, and he says, by the way, you've got three weeks to work, and then you need to leave. And you drive home and think... What is happening in my life? He would say that is full-blown spiritual war. When you are arguing with your spouse of many years who you love, but now you feel embittered and heated and want to cut yourself off from them, that is full-blown spiritual war. When you get the, you know, the, the scan that the doctor says, I'm extremely concerned about what I found here, that is also full-blown spiritual war. He would say, these are all those things. We are called to action and defense and offense in all those circumstances. It is not simply a neutral place where it's no longer about our hearts or our minds or our bodies. It's always about those things. So that's what he's trying to point out. And uh, I brought screw tape letters in here last time, but we didn't have a reading from it. So here's what Lewis is saying. Remember, he's writing this book as though we're kind of a, a confederacy of, of demons and fallen angels who are trying to be, kind of give each other tips on how to undermine the hearts and souls of men and women. So that is the speaker here. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, the enemy in this case being God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So, do we absolutely have moments of dramatic conflict and devastation in our lives, things that drive us to doubt and anger? Yes, we do. Lewis's point, which I think goes with a lot of this, though, and to Erica's question, is that there is in many ways just simply the everyday ebbing and flowing of simple decision-making that is maybe not righteous, 
easy sins that we think, God doesn't really care about those. Decisions that make us consider maybe we are a little more righteous than our neighbor. Or maybe, you know, if I don't take care of myself in this avenue, no one cares. It's all good. And those stack up. Yes, Jim. This is a very good analogy to how we have to be very, very careful in the church. There is no existing church who just started on one particular Sunday and said, let's drift into apostasy. <laughs> yes. Very gradual decisions made over periods of time. And so sometimes we may, as congregants in a church, we may look upon something that we disagree with and say, ah, it's just a minor uh, situation, not worthy of an argument. But we have to be very careful going down that path because a series of those situations can lead us all into a process. Jim, thank you for sharing that. That's excellent. His point being that this is also how churches drift away from the bedrock of Christ, right? Jim's words is we don't, in the same way you don't wake up and say, I'm going to have an affair today. Church doesn't wake up and say, I think we don't believe in the Trinity anymore. It doesn't happen that way. Or I think actually we can save ourselves. Or actually I think, you know, sin is not as big a deal as we tend to think. It's because of small consistent difficulties or course corrections or changes in in our affections. And so Jim makes a good point that I would reiterate, especially as an elder of this church, if you are looking at the teaching and the preaching and the exhortation of this church and think, I don't think that's biblical, or I think you're off track there, please do come and talk to us. Because if, if we all sit there like the frog in slowly boiling water and never say a thing, then we might end up as a church that has drifted away from the fold. By God's grace, we have been here for a long time, and the Lord has been very, very faithful to the orthodoxy of this congregation. But that's not a guarantee. Because we are all very broken vessels who are trying to join together to contain the Holy Spirit, right? We are not cut out for it except that God supports us. So thank you, Jim. Excellent. And that is very much a part of this. Uh, We're going to get to a a quote next. Um, But ultimately, I mean, spiritual warfare is the arraignment of darkness against humanity in general, but against the church of Christ in particular. This is what they hate. Absolutely. Public enemy number one is the actually rightly ordered worship of the triune God and the gospel spreading. So on the other side, so that's kind of just like the, the everyday experience, but there is, there is an even, I think, a darker thread to spiritual warfare, and this is maybe what you, know, you signed up to, to hear about today, uh, the juicy stuff. But I want to talk about something that it is, it's the underbelly. It's where we, we see that it's not just, you know, occasional temptations and, and conflicts of conscience, but actually really assaults from malignant evil. Um, so I, I've read this, uh, Richard Gurnall, or pardon me, Richard Gilpin, who we were talking about a few weeks ago, he had this long series of treatises on the, the military strategy of hell. It's great. I mean, again, you look at any of these Puritans and just go down their bibliography, uh, their, their book titles are 78 words long with four semicolons and dedicated to three different kings. It's just beautiful. <laughs> But so I'm going to distill what he said there in this analogy, which actually uh, an acquaintance of mine, Rich, had, had, had written about this. I'm going to use his language, uh, but he's also worked with the Puritans here and thinking about this. So it says, when Christ disarmed the powers and principalities of the nations, and we're going back to Deuteronomy 32 and Babel, 
they scattered into the wilderness. Uh, that is to say, after they were set over the nations, then later Christ ascends and says, your time is up, get out of here. They scatter like cockroaches with a light coming on. However, like banished kings in exile, they maintain small pockets of loyalty, even as their regime is overthrown. They're not sitting on the, the, the top of the pecking order, but they're not powerless either. Through excursions, propaganda, and seduction, all the schemes of the devil, spiritual evil carves out a stronghold in the corners of the world. From that stronghold, larger sorties are launched, leading eventually to whole cultures being repossessed by demons, false worship, and rampant godlessness. Dare I say, the United States of America and the modern West. Sounds a lot more familiar than the city on a hill from a few centuries ago, does it not? This is, I think, one of the most important verses here, not only for this concept, but also when we're talking, you know, the ideas of, like demon possession or whatnot. What does that actually look like? So Matthew here says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil in itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. That is why uh, Frederick Leahy, who wrote Satan Cast Out, he, he makes a great point to say there is no such thing as mere exorcism. You don't just knock on the door of somebody's heart and say, get out. Because unless it's being filled with something else, it's an empty house waiting for repossession. Literal repossession, demonically speaking, or the, you know, the, the grave temptation and error that simply comes from being outside the gospel. That's why he ultimately argues, you want to know what exorcism looks like? It's somebody accepting Christ into their heart. Because there is no other way to drive out active spiritual evil than to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's why elsewhere, you know, it talks about you have to bind the strong man before you can go in and plunder his goods. Well, if you don't do that... You can't get into the house. And in this case, Matthew is saying, listen, if you simply make something look good, if you cast out this demon, if you kind of sweep up the house, but you don't fill it with the right owner, it's ripe for the taking. And I, I think we can apply this as well. Culturally speaking and otherwise, Leahy goes on to say, behind the dictators, the totalitarian systems, the persecuting powers, the corrupting celebrities, and the capricious tyrants of this earth, the Bible sees Satan and his subalterns arrayed against mankind in general and the church of God in particular, what we mentioned earlier before. He's saying, again, there's nothing neutral. If you're a sinful person, it's not like you just have this dynamo of corrupted flesh and that's it. You're being prodded along and used and abused by all sorts of folks who would like to see the destruction of the human soul and the collapse of the church. It's a lot more than just the flesh. And that's seen throughout the world, and that is directed, in fact, by the adversary. Those three go together. Well, I think we can get through this slide and take a few questions and call it good. We'll wrap up next week. Um, so that the point here is that this paradigm of infernal control over the corrupted world does not only manifest in nations, as Leahy's talking about, but in families, in households, and in individuals. If we are not indwelt by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's just going to keep coming back. And that can follow family lineages. That can sit in a place 
even the Puritans and, and they go back to the, the scriptures saying they're desecrated places just as they're desecrated people. There are haunted areas in the world where these love to hang out. It is corrupted. It is not sanctified. It's the opposite of sanctified. This highlights uh, the critical importance of our understanding the supernaturalism of the world. So we might aid those who come to the church with these issues and not turn them away in ignorance. This is happening more and more and more. Is why this is a timely study, because people are being afflicted by things they can't understand. They're seeing things they can't reconcile. They are being bereft by thoughts that destroy their normalcy, and they don't know why. And in a lot of mainline Protestant churches, somebody walks in and says, I think I'm being oppressed by demonic forces. And we go, or what? That, that's that's old-fashioned. We don't think about that anymore. Wrong. We should think about that all the time. Not obsess over it, but we need to have the answers to these situations. Uh, Dark Holler, if some of you are aware of that, that's a documentary that our own Ward Heine put together, and it charts throughout Appalachia like generational sin, witchcraft, occultism, and darkness, like real, the real deal. Go watch it. It focuses deeply on how evil infests a family, and it's brilliant because it is exposing that only the gospel dislodges this. There will be a cycle of hatred, of vengeance, of destruction, of self-destruction, until it is interrupted by Jesus Christ. That's it. It will only get worse. It will never get better. And again, that's a, that's a look of a family, but that happens in cultures, that happens in households, that happens in regions. And we need, unless we gather together in the name of Christ and have his presence there, then it's not going to go away. Um, it's interesting. I'll, I'll note this and end here for questions. But since beginning this series, several people in this church have come to me and said, hey, I've, I've run into really weird things I can't explain. You know, I, I think I've been in haunted places. I think I've seen darkness manifest in my house. I think I've seen people standing over my bed when I'm sleeping and I'm paralyzed, and I think it's spiritually evil. I think there are knocks in the window and, and things flying around my house. I've been to places where this has happened. What do I do? And again, they had also followed up with saying, I would have never shared this with anybody because I thought it was goofy and, and it's probably fake and I'm, I'm probably just need some new meds or maybe I just need to nap some more or maybe I am not working out enough, right? We go back to this where we're trying to solve these issues of awareness with the wrong means. So I, I certainly do not wish those experiences on anyone. They are dark and evil. But they're happening because we live in a world that is filled with active, desecrating influences. It's not just in our hearts. It's not just in the world. It's also in active oppression by agents of the evil one or the evil one himself. So we, we, there's plenty there. And again, we'll, we're going to go into, um, we'll, we'll wrap this up next week. But any questions here before we close today? I know there's a lot. Or comments. Yes, Laura. It's an observation. If you go to somewhere like Gettysburg, they're making money off of an industry of people mm -hmm. talking about ghosts. And you can walk like, and experience these ghosts. Somewhere on this slide, you stated that the first generation may not be as simple. It's like whisper down the lane. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon, the truth is totally obliterated. Yeah. 
kneel before a seat of truth. Yeah, yeah. Laura makes a good point. She says, you know, I mean, we, we can go and see where there's profit to be made on, you know, poltergeist tours and ghost ghost investigations and whatnot. The irony is that those are almost exclusively being conducted by godless people, right? You know, we we and and trying to dig in here over these weeks, we have the categories to explain all this stuff. I mean, we're talking about actual lowercase g gods who are inhabiting nations and corrupting them, and who do yank away the worship that's due to Yahweh, it's real things. These are real things. There are fallen angels. There are demons. They're not fancies that we just, you know, antiquated language out of the Old and New Testament. So to that point, you know, there is active supernatural evil in places, to be sure. But if we're going to say, you know, get out your infrared camera and see if we can pick up a hot spot, that is the wrong approach because there could be something very malignant there that is happy to take you for a ride on your dumb little recorder thing, right? They will absolutely delude you. That's their job. Uh, one more question or comment. Melissa? Right. 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 And so Melissa's saying, you know, how do we comment then on the situation where we do have family members or friends who see everything as so inexplicably spiritual that there is nothing but that reality. It's to what Rihanna's point was earlier, where, you know, it's an overemphasis. And that's why I'm trying to talk about, that's why we belabored that slide, talking different ways to think about ourselves, the head, the heart, the hands, all these things, because it is not just one thing, just as it is not just one front of warfare. It is not just one avenue to where we're sanctified. It's all these things working together. So, right, if we have kind of the extreme charismatic idea that ever, like even my illness is just demonic which maybe there are i mean we see paul he was he was afflicted with a you know a thorn in his flesh sent by satan so that was a, his description a physical ailment that has a spiritual origin it's not impossible but to say everything always is just simply if you know the name of this demon you can cast him out and then your problem solved that's more like magic than it is like christianity All right, let's go ahead and close and pray, and we'll pick up here next time and close this out and have a summary session together. Father, thank you, as always, for the platform to look at your word and to think about the the commentators and the thoughtfulness of, of many generations of the church to understand more richly our experience, our exposure to the supernatural, and ultimately our great debt to Christ for his work on our behalf. We pray that we would go to worship now and do so with diligence and thoughtfulness and come and meet you and commune with you truly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.